Hello and happy summer to all you royals, rebels, and romantics out there. This summer, we're cruising through history as I share some of the highlights of the talks I gave while cruising through the British Isles. So sit back and enjoy as we go cruising through history. Our summer of cruising through history is coming to an end, and I wanted to wrap it up with some tutors by the numbers. Today, we'll be talking about breakfast, death, and so much more. Let's start with how many meals we eat during the day. Not counting all of the snacks, most of us have about three. Well, how many meals did the tutors eat during the day? It seemed to shift a bit through the dynasty. During medieval times, people lived by the laws of the church. And those laws said you didn't eat anything before Mass. Records tell us about time spent dining, and that would be dinner served midday. And there are records about supping, that would be supper served in the evening. There are records about feasting at religious and other special occasions, but there is very little in medieval records about breakfast. Dinner, that large meal, was eaten around 10.30 or 11 in the morning, and then supper about 3.30 or 4 in the afternoon. Now, there are some accounts of breakfast, but it seems to have been limited. According to the household accounts, in the 15th century, only certain people were allowed to eat breakfast. It was a privilege in the household of Cecily, Duchess of York, according to historian Ian Mortimer. Breakfast was considered a necessity for those people who were sick or old or unable to work. There's also some thought about those away from court and those away from the written, carefully recorded document that people were eating to sustain themselves. I mean, think about it. Before you head out for a long day of physical work, usually getting up with the sun or even before the sun, farmers and other laborers probably had to eat something to sustain themselves. In fact, according to historian Ruth Goodman, a favorite breakfast for workers like that in Tudor times consisted of, you guessed it, bacon and eggs. As the Tudor dynasty went on, breakfast became a more popular meal among all levels of society. And just like with other meals, what you ate for breakfast depended on your status. An earl or a countess might enjoy a high-quality white bread made from the finest flour, some wine as well as beer, and beef at breakfast. The ladies serving the countess would likely eat household bread that wasn't quite as fine, but still very good, some beef, maybe not as much, not quite the variety, and beer. Those working outside the house, in the farm, or in the stables would make do with low-quality bread and beer, which might be supplemented by the meals they would cook, porridge or soup, or a stew often was also at breakfast. The social and cultural changes associated with the Reformation, as well as the economic changes and population shifts during the Tudor dynasty, may have contributed to the spreading of the popularity of breakfast. 
in the 16th century, there, something changed in economics and people began to work for someone else. There were laws regulating work hours. And from March to September, when the sunlight was longest, your workday went from 5 a.m. to 7 or even 7.30 p.m. A short time was allowed in the middle of that for dinner, but it had to be pushed back later than 11 o'clock in the morning if it were going to last until 7 or 7.30 at night. And if that's pushed back, there's a need for another meal. So by the end of the 16th century, that early meal, breaking your fast with breakfast, was more and more common. And by the end of the 16th century which of course coincided with the end of the Tudor dynasty just a few years later in 1603, breakfast had become a widespread meal. And that meant by the end of the dynasty, three meals a day for the Tudors. Now, speaking of eating, we're going to talk about what happens after eating. And I apologize because we're going to get just a little bit down and dirty and talk about toilets. The flushing toilet was thought to be designed by Thomas Brightfield in 1449, about 36 years before the Tudor dynasty even began. But it didn't catch on at all. And it was Elizabeth I's so-called saucy godson, Sir John Harrington, who gave us the written specifications for a flushing toilet and how it would work. His Metamorphosis of Ajax, the title of which is a play on the slang word Jake, describes a device he had installed in his house. There was a tank of water under a seat with a bowl, and when a lever was pushed, that tank emptied into a cesspool. It's reported that Harrington installed one specifically for Elizabeth at Richmond Palace, one of her very favorite homes, but without the foundation of a sewage system and without plentiful water that was piped into all kinds of places, the idea of a flushing toilet didn't catch on for hundreds of years. But we can think about that one or two flushing toilets in Tudor England. So what did everybody else do when they had to go to the loo? Records at Hampton Court Palace give us some clue. Now, medieval garter robes, which had been around for hundreds of years before the Tudors, served a dual purpose. And so by the time the Tudors are coming into being, these garter robes had two purposes. Yes, it was a privy, but it was also, stunningly and surprisingly for a lot of us, a storage room for clothing and valuables. And that sounds a little crazy, but actually urine and the ammonia in urine helped keep away moths and other parasites. So it was a good place to store those things. Um, There was also the privy function and they were designed for whatever needed to, to fall through and out either into a pit or preferably into a moat or a river. And sometimes on coastal castles, the well-located garter robe just went right out with the sea and right out with the tide. And that meant that there was less cleaning up to do afterwards. However, it also meant that castle right there on the coastline 
offered an opening to people attacking from the water. And so, in fact, some of the garter ropes are fitted with bars to keep people out so that the castle can't be invaded through those chutes. A a smelly climb, I'm sure. Now, not surprisingly, when we think of Henry VIII, it was his Hampton Court Palace that took things to a whole new level. The most important guests in the king's court were lodged in chambers at Hampton Court that included all the luxuries of the day, and that meant an ensuite, chimney, and lavatory. But most people didn't get those prime rooms. For those lower down on the social scale, Hampton Court Palace boasted a, quote, great house of easement. It was located by the river near the main goat house, gatehouse, and apparently provided quite a nice view of of who was coming up to the palace. Anyway, this could accommodate 14 men at a time. So this was the great house of easement. Now, the king, of course, didn't spend any time there. He had his own toilet, and it was as ultimate and as luxurious and over-the-top as everything else. The clothes stool of the king was covered in velvet and ribbons, and he, of course, had a groom of the stool to keep him company and provide him with anything he might need while he took care of business on his royal throne, so to speak. All right, let's move on to a little bit more, um, less malodorous and more appealing part of Tudor life, and that's some of the favorite palaces. So by the time of his death in the mid-16th century, Henry VIII had acquired or built and refurbished about 60 places he could call home. He and other Tudor monarchs didn't spend a lot of time living in all of these places, and some were used for other purposes and housed other important people. Example, there were royal apartments in the Tower of London, and the Tudors, according to tradition, would stay there before their coronations, but they used the royal apartments less and less during the Tudor reign as a palace or as a home. Westminster Palace had been one of the main residences of medieval monarchs for years and years and years. But there was a fire in the royal residences in 1512, and Henry VIII sort of moved out and moved on. And so even when the palace was rebuilt after the fire, he really didn't live in Westminster anymore. So where did the Tudors live? I thought it might be fun to look at some of the places and palaces of Henry VIII and the other Tudor kings and queens in terms of where they went to give birth, where were the Tudors born, and where did they die. So we're going to start with Greenwich, or the Palace of Placentia. Marguerite of Anjou, the wife of Henry VI, took over Bella Court after the death of previous owner Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, in the mid-15th century. She enlarged and improved the place and added a pier for river access and named her new palace Placentia, or Pleasant Place. She entertained there, and then Henry VII, when he came to power, further enlarged the palace, and he really liked that one. And Henry VIII did too. And there were banquets and jousts held there, and there was a large joust there in 1536 
where Henry VIII had that terrible accident that permanently compromised his health. And there's evidence that both Mary I and Elizabeth I spent a great deal of time there as the Queen of England. Now, it's called Greenwich often because it's located in Greenwich Park, and the site of it is now the site of the old Royal Naval College. And recently, some excavation work there gave us a really exciting glimpse into Tudor life. Just 2017, not that long ago, some workers were excavating, and they discovered two rooms from the original Greenwich Palace. Based on their location, which was back a little bit from the river, they thought they might be kitchen areas or a bakehouse or a brew house. And there's one that contains these niches for bee bowls, which would have been used for keeping beehives during the winter. So it's just this wonderful idea. And then in the summer, those areas would have kept food and drink cold, or at least cool. So it's interesting, you know, we keep discovering things about the Tudors. And the Greenwich, of course, was a huge, the Greenwich Palace was a huge center of court life. And it's the location of three Tudor births, three really significant births. Yes, Greenwich Palace can boast Henry VIII and both of his daughters, Mary I and Elizabeth I. All three were born at Greenwich. Now, another palace that saw a very magnificent birth is Hampton Court, which was the location of the birth of Henry VIII's pride and joy, Edward. Henry got Hampton Court from Thomas Wolsey. Wolsey had hoped that his gift of the magnificent Hampton Court would sort of pave things over with the king and make him a little happier, and uh, it didn't really work that way. But Hampton Court was a hugely important palace in the reign of Henry VIII. All six wives visited Hampton Court, and they all left their mark there. Now, when Henry visited Hampton, he was likely to have between 800 and 1,000 courtiers with him. And one of the things we see at Hampton are these marvelous kitchens. Henry had to completely enlarge the kitchens from Wolsey's day to produce huge quantities of food. It was like a food factory when Henry would come to stay. There's also a vast wine cellar. And one of the great things about Hampton Court Palace is that we can literally visit. You can see the kitchens. You can see the wine cellar. You can walk through the Great Hall. It's just a marvelous place. I personally am so thrilled and relieved that when William and Mary decided to renovate Hampton Court, they ran out of money and were not able to replace all the Tudor buildings. So there is still so much for us to see. So in the 1530s, it was a favorite home. It was a big showcase for the king. And on the 12th of October, 1537, Henry's third wife, Jane Seymour succeeded in doing what none of the other wives could do, provide a son who would outlive him. And so Edward, the only tutor to spend his entire life completely either heir to the throne or on the throne, was was it was a joyful occasion. However, that joy was tempered because less than two weeks later, Jane died on the 24th of October. Now, maternal death was not that uncommon for Tudor mothers. There's a bit of debate now whether it was childbirth fever or whether perhaps she even died of something like food poisoning. But in any case, 
Jane died. The king was heartbroken. It really changed everything, although he did go on to marry again, as you know. But let's think about that for a minute. Speaking of death, where did the Tudors die? So all of the Tudor rulers, with the exception of Jane Grey, you may or may not consider Jane Grey to be a Tudor monarch, but all the rest of them died of an illness at the end of their lives. There was time for preparation for their deaths. And so it's possible to think they would have retreated to a place that they felt especially comfortable or that brought them some comfort during these final days. Now, poor Jane Grey didn't have that opportunity because she was beheaded in the Tower of London. But let's look at some of the others. Henry VIII had experienced failing health ever since that jousting accident in 1536. He lived an another, another 11 years, but his leg injury worsened and there were other ailments and he became virtually immobile by the end of his life. He couldn't ride or dance or even walk through the palace. In the final two years, he was carried from room to room on a on a chair and he didn't have any exercise, but he kept eating and he gained a tremendous amount of weight and that made everything worse. And his eyesight was filing and by failing. And so by the end, he retreated. He spent his final Christmas alone and retreated to Whitehall. Whitehall Palace, he had also acquired from Thomas Wolsey. Um, the king used uh, Richmond as a model. He loved Richmond. So when he got York Place from Thomas Wolsey and he wanted to make it into a palace, he kind of used Richmond as a model and he had a sporting facility and he added a bowling green and he added a tennis court. And it was one of his favorite palaces during his reign. So he was able to stay at Whitehall to spend his final days there. Now, Edward, who was Henry's successor, of course, he died in the place where so many Tudor monarchs had been born at Greenwich. Edward was not sickly throughout his life, as is sometimes thought, but he did get smallpox um, the year before his death, and he seems to have not quite recovered, or at least it really affected his immune system. So in January of 1553, when he became sick again, he just couldn't get better. And so as the year went on, he would rally a little, but then he'd fall back sick again, and he'd rally. He just never returned to full strength in 1553. And as things became worse. And as he realized he was not going to have long to live, he devised, he introduced his devise for the succession because Edward was determined not to leave the throne to his half-sister, Mary. His death ended up being long and painful and perhaps even prolonged by treatments to keep him alive long enough for Northumberland and other members, other Protestant members who were determined to get Jane Grey on the throne. And usually we go right to that part of the story, the Jane Grey, Mary, all of that. But this moment, I'd like us to just stick with Edward as he is sicker and sicker. And according to historian Claire Ridgway, as he was dying on the 6th of July, 1553, he prayed, quote, 
Lord God, deliver me out of this miserable and wretched life, and take me among thy chosen, howbeit not my will, but thy will be done. Lord, I commend my spirit to thee. O Lord, thou knowest how happy it were for me to be with thee. Yet for thy chosen sake, send me life and health that I may truly serve thee. O Lord, my God, bless my people and save thine inheritance. O Lord God, save thy chosen people of England. O my Lord God, defend this realm from papistry and maintain the true religion that I and my people may praise thy holy name for thy son, Jesus Christ's sake. So in his moments of death, in those moments right before death, he was very concerned and he really felt like he was doing what he needed to do, even up till the moment he died to save the soul of his people. He is the only tutor to die at Greenwich where so many were born. So it's just really interesting. And let's turn to Mary the first. Mary had several illnesses throughout her life possibly made worse by the very poor treatment after her mother, Catherine of Aragon, was sent away. So it's reported that ill health, her ill health, her problematic health may have raised concerns when it came to ambassadors deliberating about Mary as a marriage prospect. So her ill health was sort of known about. And during the stress of Edward's reign, she came under a increasing pressure. He really put pressure on her to abandon her religious beliefs. And this probably continued to her illness as well. It just was this overwhelming pressure and she was resisting. When Edward died in 1553, Mary rallied support and successfully took that throne she totally believed was hers. And she fairly quickly married Philip of Spain, not popular with the English people, but popular with Catholic Europe and right away believed herself to be pregnant. And there was some swelling, and her period stopped, and people thought she was pregnant. But time went by, weeks went by, months went by, and there was no baby. So we think now the swelling in her belly and these other symptoms may have been a phantom pregnancy. She so wanted to be pregnant. It may have been the beginnings of a more serious illness. Then Philip left for quite a while. He came back again. There was a visit. And in 1557, she thought she was pregnant again. Her belly swelled again. Few people by this time really believed it was true and believed something was wrong. And she did seem to become, as we go into 1558, she was more sickly. She was depressed. And people were starting to realize she wouldn't recover. She went to St. James's Palace in August. Um, This palace had been commissioned by Henry VIII. He wanted a smaller palace than some of his huge ones, so fewer people could come and he could just get away from court life for a bit. So in 1554, it was remodeled, and Mary spent the final days of her life there. Despite her reluctance, she did eventually agree that Elizabeth would be her heir, although apparently she never said Elizabeth's name, but she made it clear. She heard Mass on the 17th of November, 1558, and then Mary quietly died. Various diagnoses have been suggested, but what we want to think about is she is the only Tudor monarch to have died at St. James's, this smaller palace. Now, the final place we'll be considering today 
is interestingly the place where two Tudor monarchs died, Richmond Palace. And this provides the bookends of the dynasty in terms of kingly or queenly deaths. The first and the final Tudor monarch died at Richmond. So what do we know about Richmond Palace? It was one of the most significant palaces during the Tudor reign. Henry VII took it from his mother-in-law, Elizabeth Woodville, in 1487. That was two years after he came to the throne. He renovated it, but the renovation was interrupted by a fire in 1497. Henry carried on and ordered the work to continue, and by 1501, it was considered a true English Renaissance palace. The king named it Richmond after his father, who was the Earl of Richmond, and so Richmond was sort of a family name. Now, Catherine of Aragon and Princess Mary spent time in Richmond, and later Richmond became part of the settlement awarded to Anne of Cleves in her divorce from Henry VIII. Anne, of course, is the only former wife of Henry VIII who remained in favor, and she actually hosts the king and his daughters at Richmond. Elizabeth, during her reign, also spent a great deal of time at Richmond. So Henry VII did such a remarkable thing by seizing the throne, holding on to the throne, launching the Tudor dynasty with two sons and two daughters. The future had seemed secure. The death of Arthur in 1502 really threw everything into question. Prince Henry was really young. He was unprepared. And the future of the dynasty didn't look so good. And if the death of his son shook the foundation of the dynasty, the death of Elizabeth of York, the wife of Henry VII, really shook the foundation of the king. And after her death, after the death of his wife, he tipped into his own worst instincts, grasping for money and security and everything. And eventually, I think he realized that the only way to keep the dynasty alive was to keep himself alive until Henry VIII became old enough to rule on his own without a regency. And he tried really hard to do that. He came pretty close. He was ill in 1508, and he went to Richmond Palace in early 1509. Reportedly, he stopped seeing people. He shut himself away. And by April, it was clear he was dying. So his mother, Margaret Beaufort, came to be with him. And John Fisher, the Bishop of Rochester, he was literally with him till the end. And according to Fisher's record, Henry VII was troubled as he was dying, and he was sort of bargaining with God and admitting he'd made a lot of mistakes and and begging to be delivered, begging for mercy. And he was promising to be a better man if God just gave him a little bit more time. But that, of course, was not to be. He died, that first Tudor king died the night of the 21st of April, 1509. And even though Henry VIII wasn't quite 18 years old, he was easily able to accede to the throne, to rule on his own, and to turn 18 in just a few weeks. And the the succession from Henry VII to Henry VIII went very, very smoothly. And nearly a hundred years later, that same palace would be the site of the death of the final Tudor monarch. So Elizabeth had been experiencing a steady decline in her health and in her joy and in her enjoyment of life in those final years. She outlived most of her friends. She lived longer than most people, and she outlived most of her friends. She had loss after loss after loss. So the death of Robert Dudley in 15. 15- 88, and then following that, the death of Blanche Perry, the death of William Cecil, that demonstrates she was losing people in her personal life. Robert Dudley, 
in her women and those who surrounded her and who were most close to her, like Blanche Perry, and in her government, William Cecil. How could she go on without him? And so it was a really devastating time. And in 1601, when Robert Devereux, the Earl of Essex, her final favorite, was executed for treason, this was just the final blow to the queen. By early 1603, she was very melancholy and she retreated to Richmond. According to historian Tracy Borman, Richmond was where the queen felt she could, quote, best trust her sickly old age. So she found comfort in Richmond. She surrounded herself with her most loyal friends, her most loyal ladies. And even in the midst of that, there was another loss, the surprising death of Catherine Howard, Countess of Nottingham, who had served Elizabeth almost her entire reign. And so it was just loss, loss, loss. And she was lamenting her death. She refused to eat or sleep. She didn't want to get into bed. She somehow seemed to feel if she got into bed and lay down, that was it. And she was just weeping about the death of Mary, Queen of Scots, and weeping and lamenting. And finally, Charles Howard was able to persuade her to go to bed. And the archbishop came in and talked to her about the joy that was awaiting her in heaven. And eventually, on the 24th of March, 1603, Elizabeth died and brought an end to the Tudor dynasty. Now, there are a lot of suggestions for for what could have caused her death, including the toxic makeup she had been using for decades that we know included mercury and poisoning and had been seeping into her skin. She might have had cancer. She might have had a bronchial infection that turned into pneumonia. There were many things, and she contributes to that mystery because she decreed no one would be allowed to examine her body after her death. So the final queen passed in Richmond, and that was the end of the dynasty. So from start to finish, from morning to evening, and from birth to death, the Tudors, I believe, can be better understood when we look at these numbers. Thank you so much for joining me to look at more Tudors by the Numbers. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Royals, Rebels, and Romantics as we cruise through history this summer. I so appreciate your listening. Please consider leaving a rating, subscribing, maybe sharing with a friend, and even becoming a patron. I would really appreciate it. And let's keep shaking up history together. Together.